1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Dana Pollan, author of the book, Dreams of Flight, The Great Escape in American Culture, published in 2021 by University of California Press. Dreams of Flight offers the first full-length study of the great escape the classic film based on a true story of American and allied prisoners of war who hatched an audacious plan to divert and thwart the Wehrmacht and escape into the nearby countryside. We talk about Dana's film background, as well as why this particular movie was so important to the changing culture and film industry when it was released. Welcome, Dana Polan. I'm here with Dana Polan author of the book Dreams of Flight, The Great Escape in American Film and Culture. Hi, Dana. How are you? Very
1: good. Thank you for having me. No problem.
0: Um, I found this, uh, I have a lot of different sources for books, and this one came across, uh, I don't haven't really done anybody from University of California Press up until now, but not only do I have you, but I've got another person who it looks like I'll be interviewing with an upcoming book. Anyway, I... Um, one of the things that always interests me is, is interviewing people who try to discuss and present the background of a film. And you definitely do with uh, Dreams of Flight, uh, which, of course, is about the film The Great Escape. Um, before we get more in-depth in the actual book, though, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. What, Obviously, you you've got a long career, but what led you to decide in the end that cinema studies was something you wanted to do?
1: That's a great question. I actually started out in my academic trajectory in uh, in a very different uh, path. Um, I was going to be an electrical engineer. I started at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, planning to be an engineer, discovering though that I had no aptitude for math, which is actually very important to being an engineer, realized it was not for me. Now, I should maybe even go a little back further. When I was in high school and I, I grew up in um, nor, I grew up just north of New York City in a small town. And the guidance counselors, I think, were at a loss, especially if you were sort of outside outside the norm or outside the box. Like if you said, I, I love working on cars, they'd say, oh, you should be a mechanic. If you say, I, like, uh, I, I live on a farm and I like hus- uh, animal husbandry, they'd say be a vet, a veterinarian. In my case, the two things I liked to do when I was uh, a high schooler was amateur radio and going to movies. Um, So when they heard amateur radio, they thought that's vacuum tubes, things like that, electrical engineering. It was not something I thought of, it was more that they told me to go that direction. And it was in part because when I said I like movies, uh, short of being a movie critic, there was not, they didn't have a sense that there was any career. They didn't know about cinema study. Cinema study, when I was in high school, late 60s, early 70s, was really in its Modern film study was really in its nascent moment. Uh, I should back up and say one thing I did in the in recent years was a history of the rise of film study. And it has two moments. There's a moment between 1915 and 1935, which is very a hesitant moment of cinema study. And then there's this kind of um, return to thinking about film in the 60s, and 70s in part because of the new kinds of films that are being done, the new American cinema, European cinema. So everybody's interested in that, but that didn't really filter down to my high school. So they didn't advise anything about movies. I went to RPI, as I said, was not getting engineering at all, but there was a film appreciation class and I didn't know there was such a thing. And it wasn't, in retrospect, I don't think it was that great a class, but it made me think you could teach film. Uh, The professor, I think, came from English, which was the origin of a lot of film teaching in the 60s and 70s, As people either out of communication or out of English departments and sort of treating film as a kind of narrative art. Uh, That got me interested in thinking about where I could study film. I've always had an interdisciplinary bent, so I didn't want to go to a solid, straight film program, and there weren't that many in the 70s. So I transferred from RPI to Cornell, very strong in the humanities. And developed a cinema study there as an undergraduate major. So that that was the original background was going into cinema study. Uh, I had not, did not have an interest in production. I wanted to study and teach cinema. I had a very good undergraduate advisor at Cornell, a man named Don Fredrickson, who since passed away, uh, and he was sort of a model for how you might do or think about cinema. Uh, And again, wanting to be interdisciplinary, I did not go to a graduate film program or cinema program. I went to Stanford and did a program called Modern Thought Literature, again, but with a film dissertation. So it's always been cinema study, but from an interdisciplinary point of view. Uh, In my case, I think that primarily means film in relation to culture at large.
0: Yeah, you and I are close to age. I graduated from high school in 1973, so you were earlier than me. But
1: yeah, 71.
0: Right. We're not talking about that much difference when it comes to how cinema was considered back then. Uh, as you point out, it really wasn't a something that you study, quote unquote. At least in that period, it, it was like you say, it was beginning because by the 70s, we've already seen you know, a lot of changes in, in how cinema is viewed, particularly internationally. So, uh, it's not a surprise that, uh, you would have, uh, had the same experience as I did. The other thing, and we'll talk about this now, you know, as we move towards the book, um, is the background of how we saw film. Um, obviously there were only two ways to see a movie. One was in the theater and one was on television. Um, and unfortunately or whatever you in order to see a movie on in the theater had to obviously be showing and when it came to older movies that was very difficult but you were in a position where at your time of life um television had become incredibly important and movies started to appear as tele on the television pretty regularly so um Obviously, that became a a way to see some of film that you couldn't see any other way. But obviously, just to briefly add a few things, you're a professor of cinema studies at New York University now, but you've also written quite a few different books about uh, um, film and uh, specific movies and also, as you pointed out, your... uh, scenes of instruction, the beginning of U.S. study in film. So you definitely have a long, varied career in writing as well as teaching. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your way of watching movies when you were young, Uh, because, as I say, that's how you would have come across The Great Escape in the first place. Unlike today, where last week, in order to prepare myself, I rewatched it for the first time in a while, and I was able to watch this very beautiful Re- reconstruction, you know, re- restoration, and the Criterion Edition with all kinds of wonderful supplements and stuff. We didn't have those kind of things back then. So, And I know you actually got material from some of that material. So um, when did The Great Escape first come on your radar?
1: Um, let me back up this. I want to go back to this question of uh, seeing movies in the 60s and 70s. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. The two venues would have been theaters, and television. Um, in my case, and this goes back to the fact that I grew up in, um, not in New York City, but um, in Westchester County, um, and then Putnam County, so about 60, 70 miles from the city, accessible by train. But what we would see there was not what people were seeing in New York City. And there was, a, I think, a gap between general film, the the general availability of film culture and what was available um, in an urban setting like New York. And I think probably New York even more than, say, Los Angeles. So New York was the place of art cinema. You would hear about European film. You would hear about experimental film, but it wasn't what we were showing at your local movie house. So I think, and what was showing on TV, except maybe PBS a little bit, also tended to be popular fare. Yeah, what was showing on TV tended to be older Hollywood films that were now being made available to channels that needed to fill up airtime. I remember growing up, for example, with something and Martin Scorsese talks about this also, the million dollar movie, which was WOR, would show a film every day of the week, the same film. So you, you, uh, something I read recently said 830, I remember it as 430, um, that you'd come home from school, and the movie would be on. And then the next day you'd come home from school. And if you wanted, you could see the movie again. And you could see the movie all through the week. What this meant was, and Scorsese talks about this, the first time you would watch the narrative, by the middle of the week, you knew the narrative well enough that you could start watching camera movement. You could start watching mise-en-scene. So it was almost a kind of training in film analysis. But film analysis geared to genre cinema, primarily to popular American cinema. in my family, we got the New York Times. We got Time magazine. And you would know about things in New York City that became objects of desire. You would learn about movies that became objects of desire, but that weren't available to you. So my, my adolescence was the movies I was seeing and the movies I would have loved to have seen, but weren't available to me. Um, I would regularly make trip. I would make my birthday. Uh, I would ask as my present to go to the movies, to go to New York City and see something in the city. But it was with my parent, with my mother who was a single mom, I had to limit how daring and experimental and how out there whatever we saw in the city was. So we weren't gonna see, you know, a, a Susan Sontag experimental film. It had to be something a little more mainstream, maybe a little more adult than the genre films that were showing in my local community. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, I was talking about this with uh, Brian Hannon, who just who wrote a very nice book on the mag- making of the Magnificent Seven, um, who's writing, who's been writing about distribution patterns in the United States. What showed up in big cities, what showed up in neighborhood cinemas, and there were, there's he's finding often a very big gap between distribution to places like New York and what was showing everywhere else. And the example we were talking about is when I grew up, you could easily see lee marvin in cat Ballou. you could easily see lee marvin in paint your wagon because those were genre popular films and they played locally uh, where i grew up you could not see john borman's um, um mind went blank on it uh, uh, the film it's something in the pacific um, i'll i'll look it up as we're talking but it was a sort of artsy film with only marvin and toshiro mifune It's very much this kind of existential confrontation of an American soldier and a Japanese soldier. Uh, It's very symbolic, very meditative. It has an anti-war theme in it. That never would have been anywhere near my hometown. And I didn't get to see it until maybe five years ago. So, and I think our relation to films is always very complicated. So there's films that I've wanted to see for decades, but part of me is almost, reluctant to see them because then it fills in this vague desire for something in the future. So I grew up with the films I knew and saw and the films I wanted to see. And those tended to be European art cinema or Asian art cinema. And by the time I went to college, that was the, I want to say that was more the prejudice of cinema study, was not Hollywood hegemonic cinema, it was the alternatives. So for a long time, my, my dissertation was on avant-garde film. Uh, for a long time, and in the 70s, you also saw this in um, 70s film theory. There was a kind of anti-Hollywood bias. Uh, you know, there's the very influential essay by Laura Mulvey in mid in 1975, "Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema," in which she talks about the ideological power of the male gaze, and she's finding it in Hollywood film. This idea that women are, in some way, oppressed by the look of the male in films that's not being applied to art cinema experimental cinema it's being applied to hollywood so hollywood whatever our own personal tastes and actually mulvey you has told me she likes the film she critiques in that essay but we had to make a distinction between the films we liked and the and what film theory and film study was telling us we should like so hollywood i think for a long time was the bad object and it's only i think in recent years that Hollywood has become thought of as more contradictory, more complex, um, more ideologically acceptable. And for me, the Great Escape is interesting because I don't think it's fully a standard Hollywood studio escapist, ideologically complicit film. And I try and show that in the book.
0: Yeah. What you were saying relates to, of course, you know, I took a intro to film study course when I was in undergrad and which you mentioned that, you know, before we started, uh, you know, that you've seen, uh, you know, you had a similar course. And of course, that's where I got a chance to see films that back then it would be virtually impossible. So for example, we, we watched Intolerance and we watched uh, a number of other films that it would have been impossible. And unfortunately, these days, I swear it's it's an embarrassment of riches. There are so many films on so many different streaming services that you may have never seen and always wanted to see and it's reached the point now trying to find time for all of them is a little bit it's a little bit strange which of course is the exact opposite of of 50 years ago. So um Great Escape came out in 1963, right?
1: Yes. Okay. I should I just looked up the before I forget. I looked up the title of the film. Uh, it's hell, hell in the Pacific. Okay, Thank it's a 1968 you. film by John Borman. Do you want me to re-say what I had said then for editing?
0: No, I, I can figure out a way to, to to get the the name in there so that it doesn't sound like you're 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 just you know trying to Fumbling. find what you need. I understand fully, but you'll be fine. I'll I'll figure out a way to to, to make sure it okay. sounds clear. So don't worry about it. Um, okay. So
1: so going back to the Great Escape, um, my big Neighborhood theater was the Paramount Theater in Peekskill, which still exists as an art center. And
0: my my original theater is now a church. So, <laughs> oh, interesting.
1: So, and the Paramount obviously, like many theaters, would use the lobby, would use um, marquees out front to advertise upcoming films. So I remember uh, the poster for The Great Escape way before I remember seeing the film. Um, it, occur- it occurs to me I didn't see it there. I must have seen the poster there. Uh, It came out in 63. My parents would not let me see an action war movie of three hours when I was 10. I'm born in 53. So I must have seen the poster there, having gone to view something else. And it's lodged in my mind as a film I'd love to see. Uh, The the poster's iconic. The great adventure, the great action, the great escape, uh, the great entertainment, the the great adventure, the great escape, all the men running away. and i talked about that poster in the book i desperately wanted to see that film um i did not see it until either 64 65 at my local drive-in uh and the the drive-in i i would i I wanted to go back and try and find local newspapers the new york historical society has them but with COVID, i couldn't do that research i would like to have known exactly when the great escape showed at the the drive-in and what it showed with my drive-in always showed double features which for me is intriguing because the great escape is close to three hours long um, you know so this would have been probably a five-hour bill which is a, a big demand on audience attention it's a big demand on the drive-in it's a big demand on the projectionist you probably especially in small-town america can't get in more than one show you have to wait to sundown so You're waiting until 7.30, and then you have five hours of film. So I can't believe that they did more than one showing. Um, You And we had to deal with, going back to what you were saying before, the two ways of seeing movies, There's maybe we could divide the theatrical experience in the 50s and 60s into Hardtop, the enclosed movie theater, and the drive-in. And a lot of people saw movies at drive-ins, which meant uh, not great sight lines, not great projection, uh, the tinny sound coming from the speaker that's on your window. This was not a period where uh, the soundtrack came through your radio. It came through a a speaker on your window, but still, and I talk about this. um, This is a period where we were happy to be able to consume images in whatever form. And people often talk about TV versus film. When I grew up, my, my sense was any way we can see a film is wonderful. And, TV, even if you're seeing The Great Escape in black and white, when it first showed in on TV, it was 67 and 68. And it was shown in each of those years in two parts. A lot of people saw it in black and white. So they're seeing on a small screen, a color movie, not in color. Uh, They're seeing it with commercial interruptions. And yet they're loving it. One of the things I did was I asked people, film scholars, but I also went on a couple military history blogs, uh, including blogs that are specifically about Stalag Look 3, the camp that The Great Escape took place from. And I asked them for their first memories of the film. And many saw their first memory was a TV memory, watching it and loving it there. And it's not, there was, if their experiences like mine, there was no sense of this is a compromised viewing or this is a lesser viewing to watch a film on TV. Somehow we added into whatever the TV experience was We added in emotions that meant that, for me, seeing The Great Escape on a drive-in, seeing it in a theater, seeing it on TV, in my mind and in the affect the film had on me, that would have been equivalent. I would not have distinguished and said it's a lesser experience. It's seeing the film. And we he would, would be glad in whatever way to say it.
0: And then, of course, as time go on, we learn about things like aspect ratios, the idea of watching a movie in Panavision on a on a small TV screen, or worse, I saw Ben-Hur the first time on television. And the amount of screen we don't, you know, images we don't see because of the way it has to be projected on the television, those are the kind of things that we wouldn't have even thought about because we didn't right. know any better.
1: And And undoubtedly, a lot of our theater going in the 50s and 60s is, unless we go to a movie palace, unless it's a roadshow presentation, is also compromised in that way. We're probably, you know, my drive-in may not have shown it in Panavision, or my drive-in might have not had the aspect ratio exactly correct. I don't remember. Um, You know, many movie theaters would, if they were not equipped to show um, widescreen, would simply mask the top and bottom of the frame to get a kind of widescreen. So there were, and you know, when I'm seeing it in 65, that's, I think that's probably the year I saw it. That's two years after its first run. So that print may have gone through multiple runs. It might've been a scratchy print. It, uh, we took whatever we could get and we didn't take it again as a compromise. We took it as, this is a great gift. We're seeing images. you know i again i think people and i i think about this today when everybody's talking about where is where are movies going the decline of the theatrical experience under covid um i like seeing movies in theaters but i think we all compensate in our, in our experience of films we compensate for whatever platform we we have in relation to what their what the ideal platform could be if we're watching a movie on an ipad we can get into it as much as if we're watching it on a big screen. I mean, your experience of Ben-Hur, I deliberately watched, uh, I've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey multiple times in my life, including the famous uh, 70 millimeter road show at the Paris Theater in 69, 1969. But recently I deliberately watched it on my iPhone to see what it would be like. Uh, and it was obviously different, but it was still a great film, even in part because you change the scale by moving the iPhone closer. Uh, and I think our our minds do compensate. Images engage us. Images engross us at whatever scale. So I mean, we're not talking a lot about the greatest. No, scale that's. Like,
0: a, but that. I think part of your book is. That aspect of it, how we've, you know, nowadays there's a lot of great books that have come. You talk about Hollywood being considered to be lesser for a period of time with film study. Nowadays, it's not unusual to find a lot of great books about Hollywood and and the way they made movies, either from the producer's side, director, writer, actor. So some of these issues for those of us of the right age, these ideas of how we first Learned of these films or experienced them is very important, especially like you say. Nowadays, it's you get you can get a better quality, but there's still different ways to view it, so you have to sort of look at it a variety of in, in methods. So, as we get into The Great Escape, the, the, the film obviously, um, and you talk about this right from the beginning, and then of course, in the first chapter, which is the one that talks about the writing. And some of the previous versions that were out, both in written form and actually, I was shocked. I didn't know there was a television version that's never been seen in, in audio versions or radio versions. But right at the beginning, uh, and of course, let's let's make sure we're clear. I mean, this was directed by Preston Sturgis. Um, John Sturgis. John Sturgis. John Sturgis. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, and as you point out, right at the beginning... This was an example of a World War II film that wasn't necessarily I mean, we saw these World War II films and and this one was one of the action ones, but we saw it with things like the best years of our lives and others, where we were seeing people who weren't necessarily going to make it through the film, you know, as action heroes or as, uh, you know, they they were going to have real issues, and some of them are going to be related to the war and with something like Best Years of Our Lives. But in this case, as we know, and, and you gave the example of Bridge Over the River Kwai as well, that by the end of the film, it starts off a certain way, but by the end it's a completely, completely different film. And you and you say to yourself, it it, it seems like it was a definite... Um, Choice to try to sh- tell the story as closely as they could, knowing that they couldn't put a "quote unquote" happy ending on it because there wasn't one.
1: Right. So I, when when I saw The Great Escape, so I would have been about eleven or twelve, and many American boys at that moment were still quite gung ho and enthusiastic about the idea of war. So we loved uplifting, adventurous, adventure adventure filled action-filled, adrenaline-pumping war movies. And I think I say this in the book, it was not just that we thought war movies are the greatest thing ever. Some part of us thought war itself. War is this glorious, great adventure. Uh, You you may die if you're John Wayne and fighting Seabees, but you die glamorously, bringing down loads of Japanese as you do so. As we move into the 50s, I think there's a there starts to be a discontent about the American venture of war. And I think that starts to register in films. Um, the great escape, as I said, having seen the poster, which is very heroic, I absolutely wanted to see it. I thought it would be a fun film and a, an uplifting film, a rousing rip roaring film, um, as I watched it. And again, it's a long film, literally halfway through a character you care about very much Ives, a uh, sort of hapless uh, um, horse jockey uh, dies suddenly and abruptly, and that's where many theaters included an intermission. It wasn't a, an, an official intermission, but it's a very impactful emotional moment, um, both because we care about eyes and because good characters aren't supposed to die in movies. And I was completely, um, I, I was completely shocked by that that occurrence i was completely unprepared for it and it sets up that even though there's a few fun moments in the second half of the film it becomes very dour it becomes very dire um, it becomes very downbeat and i think that's part of the reason the film stayed with me was because it's not where i was at that moment in 1965 although as i about it i could see other intimations of doubt about the uh, about the imperial venture of war doubt about war as a great adventure and as you as you go back through the 50s you start to see that more and more 50s 50s war films are not gung-ho in the same way that films say between 41 and 45 are there's even a film from i think 44 called gung-ho but Films, especially after the Korean War, which is a much ideologically murky war, it's a confusing war. It's um, shocking that we won the Great War of, of World War II, and five years later we're in another war. All of those things, I think, lead to a kind of growing discontent. It's maybe not articulated by a number of Americans, but w- there's there's this sense of why are we doing this? Why are we endlessly in wars, both hot and cold? So, and 63, when The Great Escape comes out, we're beginning to hear about a place called Vietnam. So I mentioned in the book, I think, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think uh, an episode of The Twilight Zone that comes out in 63 called In Praise of Pip, which is about a boy dying uh, in war, and it, the opening title says Vietnam. I have a feeling that may be one of the first mentions in American popular culture of Vietnam. Now, there's, there's films, for example, China Gate mentions into China. But to say Vietnam, I haven't yet found an example pre-63 that talks about Vietnam. So there's this, the way I think about it increasingly is that the Great Escape participates in two different histories. There's the retrospective look back at the Second World War, but from the position of 1963. And it's still presenting it as an us versus them war. There's the Allied figures, and then there's the Germans. So it still has some of that sense of clear-cut divisions. On the other hand, The Great Escape is also participating in the history of the 60s. It's a film from 63. It's beginning to register some of the doubt, some of the suspicion, some of also beyond war, beyond the critique of war, It films are beginning to register a general critique of authority and power and establishment. Um, for example, something like Um, Cool Hand Luke from 1967. Not a war movie, but about imprisonment, entrapment, being treated as a pawn by a system of power. Um, The violence of a Cool Hand Luke, the violence of a Bonnie and Clyde is in some way an allegory of the violence in Vietnam. It's not direct, but we're increasingly thinking about firepower, what what bullets can do to bodies, and that's running through the 1960s. You the Great Escape is two years after Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Again, a book that participates in two histories. It's looking at. It's a book about World War II, but from the position of the beginning of the 1960s and increasingly the sense of the absurdity of war, the absurdity of the administration of war.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm thinking of an. You, you mentioned this about movies that. Uh... You know, you were talking about the movie, the type of movie that you wanted to see, but it was hard to see. And the, the example for me that is similar is Paths of Glory. When I was first – once I knew of Kubrick from 2001 and then farther back, seeing Paths of Glory was one of those things I always said, I wish I could see Paths of Glory. And it was finally – when it came out on home video, it was the first time I finally saw it. Right. That was another yeah, – I think I saw it. In... it was yeah, another... For me,
1: it was probably –
0: yeah, go ahead. It was an example though of one of those films that everybody you know it supposedly had some controversy to it but we didn't know cuz we couldn't see it and and once right. you finally saw it you were you were it was unbelievable what it did you know how how it affected your 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 thought processes.
1: Right. That's a great example. I mean, I I would bet Paths of Glory was not in, at my local neighborhood theater. You know, a black and white gritty anti-war film. Um you know, and it was a very divided moment in America around patriotism versus critique of warfare. Um, this uh, is a digression, but in 1968, so it would have been 15, 16, our school teacher took us to see uh, Richard Attenborough's Oh, What a Lovely War, which is an anti-war film, a very curious film. And she was roundly condemned by a lot of parents in their letters to the paper. How dare she take us to a film that's a critique of war? when we're fighting this glorious battle to keep vietnam safe from communists so there was still this conservative side but there's cracks in there's cracks in the ideology and even though the greatest escape still has rousing moments in the second half steve mcqueen going over the fence it also is a film of doubt the very ending when um, the the surviving recaptured prisoners are brought back to the camp uh, one of them um, asks his commander, do you think it was worth it? And the commander's answer is not, yes, it was absolutely worth it. It, His answer is, it depends on your point of view. And that's a very relativizing answer. It's the kind of answer you would never have had, say in, or not never, but you would rarely have had in war films of the Second World War, made in the Second World War. I just recently showed Casablanca in my film history class. Casablanca is all about converting uncertainty to absolute certainty. Cynical Rick has to convert, has to be made aware of the cause. The opening is, the the ending is still open-ended. You walk off into the fog. Um, You know, this looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship, but whatever will happen next, Rick could be killed. Rick could become a hero. There's still an open-ended ambiguity, but it's not a moral ambiguity. Rick has made his choice. The Great Escape has that ambiguity about, is it worth it? Is the venture of war uh, justifiable given all the deaths. And I, for me, the film is interesting as a film of transition. I see it on the cusp of an older commitment to gung-ho rousing storytelling with a clear-cut morality and beginning to admit that we no longer morally know what is right or wrong in war.
0: Yeah, I think the music probably, you know, the the, main, the famous march, Great Escape March, definitely brings that rousing part. But as the film continues on, you start to notice that they use that theme in different ways. Towards the end, when you get the two of the f- three people, as far as I can tell, who actually escape, they're they're getting to they're on their boat and they're about to get onto the ship that's going to take them away, and it, the theme is playing in the background, but it's not the Marshall version. It's a more wistful version, sort of saying exactly. you know, they were lucky, they were one of the few lucky people, and so they do the the, the you know Sturgis and and the and the and Bernstein. Um, Bernstein, I don't remember which way now Elmer pronounced his last name, um, got a chance to uh, play a little bit with it, because through most of the film, there's basically two themes. There's the march, and then the nighttime theme, and that's about it, back and forth. Those. That's pretty much it, but then at the end, they start to play with it, at least to try to have some sense of, you know, that there were some, a little bit of success, and there goes back to how was it worth it? depends on your point of view. If you got away, it was right. worth it, um, unfortunately. So what I want to get into now is a little more about the, the background of, of the film, mostly because I think right at the beginning of the film, and we were, we were starting to talk about this a while ago, was the idea that first, right after the beginning, there's a thing on the screen, a, a title card that says, this is all true. And, of course, as we know from studying, from watching films that are historical in nature, that seldom is the truth. Uh, There may be, you know, it could be inspired by, it could be based on, or in some cases they can say things like this happened. And we know, obviously, in this particular case, it didn't happen exactly as the film shows, but let's talk a little bit about Paul Brickhill who is the author of the original book but as you pointed out in in chapter the one chapter where you give the background of the entire film and the making um, he actually had written on the subject before this was not his first writing on on the, that, that escape and uh, it ended up being very well known in some circles. For a variety of other sources, as I mentioned, such as, for ex- example, uh, an hour-long TV version and a um, and and some other things. So who was Paul Brickhill and how was – obviously, he's incredibly important to this whole thing. But um, let's talk a little bit about Brickhill and his uh, book, The Great Escape.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple different questions to what you were saying. One is the sort of history – that goes from the the events themselves to various renditions of that original history in books, in TV, in radio, and then in the film of 1963, which as you note, um, both has a certain degree of historical accuracy. It talks about the 50, there were 50 men executed. It adds in certain things probably necessary to the box office like American stars, big budget, the I, I tend to remain agnostic on the question of, is the film a betrayal or a necessary version? It would not probably have been made if it didn't have Hollywood money. It probably would not have been made if it didn't have stars in it. But I, one of the things I did in the book was talk to a lot of uh, what I call avocational historians. What I mean by that is people are not professionally historians, but spend their leisure time studying history and writing about history and running blogs on history. Um, and they, there are some who absolutely dislike the film because of its inaccuracies. There are some who admit this is the only way a film could have been made. If it had been a Holly by being a Hollywood film and a number of interestingly, a number of the people who became historians of the real events came to it, um, from the movie, they saw the movie and wanted to learn more. Um, it was rarely the other way around other way around that they read Brick Hill and then wanted to see a Hollywood adaptation of it. Um, so Paul so there is this constant history of transformation of the real events into cultural representations weather TV, weather radio, um, the 1963 film. And just to simplify the biggest changes are that, there were no Americans in the actual escape. There were two men who had been born American, but by this point had uh, Commonwealth citizenship. Um, so literally, there were no Americans in the escape, and there were certainly no motorcycles going over fences. That, that's and there are other changes here and there. Um, Paul Brickhill was an Australian. He had worked as a journalist and was known for kind of a vivid character portrayal in his journalistic articles, good storytelling, um, taking um, taking events and turning them into narrative and rendering them in narrative form, who did what, when kind of thing. And um, he would take time to develop characters, to develop the story, which sometimes meant he was beaten to the punch in reporting in Australia in the 1930s. Because he, he would say, I need to work more on getting this the suspense in here, getting, um, uh, the drama in, uh, rather than writing right away and publishing as the event was still transpiring. Uh, he was a fighter pilot. He was shot down in, I want to say, I forget, I want to s- s- somewhere between 41, 43, uh, shot down over Tunisia and was sent to Stalag look three, um, the camp for airmen, each camp, each prison camp, there were different prison camps for different branches of the military. So there was for soldiers, for army, for navy, um, and the, the, the camp in the Great Escape was for airmen. Um, Brickhill, as a journalist, had learned how to take notes very quickly, a kind of stenography way of taking notes. And his job at, one of his jobs at the camp was to transcribe BBC transmissions. They had secret radios in the camp, and then walk, go around the camp and tell the news of the day in different barracks. So he got to see the whole camp, his experience with having seen the whole camp got him assigned in the escape plans. And I should mention no one, no one in 44 43 to 44 ever used the term the Great Escape. That's a retrospective naming of the events. No one actually used the term escape in the moment. They didn't want to be overheard talking about escapes. Brick um, Hill, his contribution to the escape uh, procedure, was to be a stooge. The stooges were all around the camp, uh, assigned to stand here or there and keep an eye on German guards, the ferrets who would be ferreting out uh, various escape plans. His particular job was to stand near the the, the building in which the counterfeiters were making documents, because that had to have open windows so that they had light enough to to forge documents. And his job was to say, a "Sermon's coming, ferret approaching." He was supposed to participate in the escape, got claustrophobia and couldn't go on the escape. Now, up until the moment of the escape, not merely was he going around the camp, hearing stories. There was another journalist, a South African named Conrad Norton. They both were part of this BBC transcribing effort. They became colleagues in that venture and decided to collect stories. And they would go around the camp and, how did you get captured? What escapes have you been involved in? Norton was obsessed by capturing, capture stories. And he was a particularly obsessed by people who, airmen who fell out of the sky without parachutes and somehow managed to survive. So grabbing onto someone else whose parachute is open. A weird story of someone hitting the top of a mountain and sliding down through the snow. Uh, and so the two of them wrote a book together called Escape to Danger. The first half is primarily Norton, and it's primarily capture stories. The second half, and it's when I say half, I'm not being precise. It's maybe two-thirds, one-third. The second half is a long section in which Brickhill recounted the buildup to and the outcome of The Great Escape. So that book came out. They agreed that each would hold ownership of the parts they had written. After the war, Brickhill took his part, which was on the escape and decided, first turned it into a series of articles. Readers digested a version of it. Somewhere in that period, late 40s, John Sturgis actually reads one of the condensations of the escape story. And then Brickle brings it out as a book called The Great Escape. The name, the title comes not from him, but from his agent. And it becomes a gigantic bestseller in England and then in the United States. And it's brought out in large print editions for kids condensed, uh, abridged versions for kids. And it is one of the key bestsellers of post-war England. Brickhill says it's second only to, I think, either the Bible or Shakespeare. He had a tendency towards exaggeration. Um, He doesn't want a Hollywood version of, he he worries that Hollywood will betray the the book. It is primarily an allied, a, a a commonwealth venture, the actual escape. Brickhill has become a darling of uh, London society, and he's worried about an Americanized version of the film. So he, for a very long time, resists uh, selling the rights with uh, one exception. And I'm, unfortunately, as, as much as you can do historical research, you can only do as much as there is archival evidence out there. And there are gaps in the story. And I I say that in the book, there are certain things we don't know. But for some reason, Brickhill sells television rights for a one-time live presentation of a TV version of The Great Escape that's presented in 1951 on NBC, on one of their Playhouse. Um, It's the uh, Philco Playhouse, I think it is. Um, And this is a period of live TV. Again, uh, very rarely are there Kinescopes made unless there's a particular reason, for example, the prestige of the producer. They're, they're presented once, and that's it. Um, so, this TV version shows, and luckily for the researcher, there is a kinescope made of the, of the film, and there is a 60 millimeter copy that's in the archives at the University of Wisconsin Madison, which I discovered. For me, that's, that was the big research find of the book. I was delighted to discover not merely that there had been a teleplay, but it still existed. I discovered it a week before I was actually going to Madison to be a visiting professor for a week. I immediately wrote them saying, I'm coming, is there a way I can see this? And they were able to digitize it. Um, and it, uh, is fascinating as a very different take. It's all done. It's an hour long show, maybe a little less. It's all on one set with, and they use multi-camera and it's a, the set was talked about in the press at the time is it's, um, it was the biggest set at NBC. It's it's a cutaway, the cutaway barracks, so you can bring the camera in. It's the field where the soldiers are marched by their German captors right outside the barracks. It's the barbed wire fence. And then it's the, the forest beyond the fence where the tunnel comes out. Along the bottom of this, along the bottom of the set, and it had to be a raised set for a reason I'll come to in a second along the bottom was a cutaway full tunnel of about 50 feet long. So they could have, um, below the, below ground, they could have characters seeming to be digging the tunnel and the cam it had to be raised up because they needed to be at the level of the cameras. So you have this entire set barracks, field, forest, tunnel all on a raised platform. And it's, Completely chronological. There's no backstory, and it's simply them beginning the the work on the tunnel, getting into the tunnel, trying to escape, and then a narrator, voiceover narrator, tells us that fifty were killed, but also says that it was was worth it. Unlike the, the 1963 version, this is a version that says it was worth it. Um, one amusing thing, well, it's it's a so it's a it's NBC. It's a U.S. production, but it's a U.S. production of Brickhill's book with rights given to them by Brickhill. So it stays very close to the book. It's very UK in, in its subject matter. There are Americans at the beginning of the film, but we, as happened in the real history, they get moved to another part of the camp. So they're not able to participate in the escape. When the Americans are in the tele, telefilm, um, up to the moment where they're moved to the other, another part of the camp, they're given dialogue that's not in Brickle's book. And I think it must have been a concession to American viewers. Let's have these, as long as we have, we're going to show Yanks at the beginning of the film. Let's have them do Yank-like things. So they talk about, let's make this, we're going to dig a tunnel that's going to be like the Lexington Avenue subway. It's going to be an express. It's not going to make local stops. It's going to go from here outside. And that's supposed to be sort of Yank humor. Um, the other concession which is an interesting one is that a number of the actors even though they're supposed to be commonwealth are played by americans so e.g marshall uh who's from wisconsin plays uh the scotsman kirk crump ramsey who was one of the diggers of the tunnel and most interestingly everett sloan who we know from citizen kane where he plays a new yorker he plays uh roger Bushill, the engineer of the escape the the head figure the big x Um, And he, I think, does pretty well at a British accent. Uh, It showed and then basically disappeared. So I was very happy to find it and be able to talk about it. The other interesting official adaptation. um, Oh, the other thing I was going to say is it does. It begins with a voice, a voice that says, this is Paul Brickhill bringing you the story. It is not Brickhill. And we know that because three years later, Brickhill does lend his voice to an Australian radio broadcast that's um, 13 hours of uh, adaptation of The Great Escape. And it's an interesting adaptation in a number of ways. The audiobook of the Brickhill novel is about six hours. So the radio show is twice as long. It's because it's a radio show, it can't have visuals. It will have people comment on things that are happening visually. So, for example, when um when and i'm going to forget the name um the character who in the film is eric ashley pitt played by david mccallum when he demonstrates the trouser bags it's all done by he, he drops his he drops his regular trousers to reveal the bags and all the men go "Ooh, ah look at his legs um, so you hear them orally commenting on something visual uh it is also set generally in forward moving real time but takes a lot more time, obviously, to unfold than the TV show. Uh, and it's much more about the tortured soul of Roger Bushell than either the TV show or Brickell's novel actually was. Uh, but he, so it's, it's with Brickell as a voiceover narrator, but doesn't completely follow the book and adds in this kind of mental agony of Bushell as he pushes his men to re- realize the tunnel, and they push back a bit at him being so dictatorial. Uh, that seems to have only played in Australia. I found it in the Australian radio and TV archives, and they were able to make me MP3s of uh, the broadcast. Yeah, There was then... I'm sorry, go ahead. No,
0: I mean, this 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 method of finding earlier versions of what become films, I just recently uh, interviewed Phil Rosenweig about his book about Reginald Rose and uh, 12 Angry Men, and it went through very similar as far as starting first as a television version and then a play before it finally made it into a movie and actually the play was around the same time but it's the same concept that there were some interesting things being done on television that luckily we get to see some of them now but there's so many that were lost to history
1: yeah and I'll tell cuz it's a it's an amusing story how I came across the teleplay and it for me has become a lesson in how to do as a as a scholar how to do historical research, and it's something I tell my students. I often tell them, "Don't get lazy. Uh, follow and follow every lead through." And this was a case where I almost didn't follow my advice. I knew I wanted to talk about Brickhill in the book. I didn't want to talk about him at length. The, my book is not centrally about the. I didn't want centrally to do the nonfiction book and the film and make it judging one against the other. As I say, I remain agnostic on that. And I really wanted to engage with the film itself in the third chapter i do this close reading of the film that's not about um the the, the book in any way it's what the film is as its own independent cultural object and I, i didn't want as i say in the first chapter adaptation study can often be this kind of bleak affair where you simply say here's the source here's the result let's measure the differences between them and in uh, for example in 1957 george bluestone did a book called novels into film and it's all about no novel no film adaptation is as good as the novel so scoring points against the film for being a failed adaptation i didn't want to get into that brick hill therefore was not i didn't want to get too much into brick hill when i started my research on him i discovered there were two biographies and because i didn't want to get priority brick hill i decided to read the shorter of the two and i read it fine great and then just as I was getting ready to go to my trip to Madison, not knowing that they had the, the teleplay, I said, well, my rule is don't get lazy. Why don't I get the other biography just in case? And it came about a week before I was leaving on my trip. I looked in the index under the Great Escape just to see what pages dealt with that. And I see Great Escape 1951 teleplay. I go, oh my God, what is this? I look it up. I see mention in the book of it, Um, And the book mentions it as not existing anymore. Uh, And it's, I don't, it's the author of that biography, Stephen Dando Collins, who's a great biographer, is in Australia. There's no way he could have known about the surviving uh, teleplay. Um, But it's, I do a little more research on IMDb. I find it listed as being produced by Fred Coe. So I type in um, the great escape, and Fred Coe on Google, and immediately it comes up as being at Madison. But uh, not no, not knowing there had been a teleplay, I would never have even set out to research. I would, uh, And I mentioned in the book, if you type in The Great Escape, you get a gazillion hits, some of which are about the film, some of which are about commercials, some of which are about, I needed a great escape because of COVID. It's it's a daunting term to research. The minute you know it, type in teleplay or Fred Co., it completely narrows down to that one teleplay that exists at Madison. But I would never have found that. I would never have thought the Great Escape radio.
0: Right. And it, it because you're saying, as you say, that in a lot of situations, if this is the only way, That you find out, I mean, it is a great example of research, which is also something I care about a lot when I talk to authors, is to getting a a sense of how they did their research, because one of the things we find out as researchers is that you sometimes have to go unusual ways to find what you're looking for, especially in these days of archives all over the all over the world. We don't always know what's not all archives are well indexed enough that we can say, okay, well, there's something here. Like what led to that copy being at uh, in Wisconsin of all places? Those kinds of things. Right. You don't even think about, okay, well, it's one thing if you know the papers of such and such person are at such and such university, but in a lot of cases, universities have large amounts of material. We don't know where what's even in some of those archives. So it is Correct. a needle in a haystack that you didn't even know there was a needle.
1: Right. Although now, I would probably if I was working on something from the 40s and 50s, I might type its title and television or its title and radio, thinking that there might have been a um, a non film version. You know, I'm I'm a, right now doing some work on Orson Welles, who's going to be I'm going to be teaching a mini course on Citizen Kane in January, and I've been l- listening to a lot of his radio adaptations from the 30s, not merely War of the Worlds, but Tale of Two Cities, uh, Thirty Nine Steps, etc. And there, if you're researching Wells, you learn that you should type in not merely the the name of any film, but radio and TV. So, for example uh, Magnificent Ambersons was a radio show before it became his 1942 film. And you would need to know that you could find that out. Um, the other thing, going back to the question of adaptation is that in the fifties, you have these two official adaptations, but you also have what I call unofficial adaptations, which is through the fifties, there is a flourishing of Prisoner of War escape literature and prisoner of war escape films. Um, some are nonfiction books that come around, come out around the same time as the Great Escape. Some are become as as close in fame to the Great Escape. For example, The Wooden Horse, The Colded Story. These are also bestsellers that kids are reading that everybody sees as a great source of rousing adventures about escape. Some of them pick up. Scenes from The Great Escape. Some create enduring motifs that any other film, any other book can pick up. So, for example, after or right around the moment of Brickle's book, uh, there's the play version of Stalag 17, when it becomes a film in 53, I want to say, it includes a scene not in the play where they've built a tunnel under a stove. And as I say in the book, I can only imagine that they're taking that from The Great Escape. It becomes a free-floating motif that people can borrow. There's at least one POW film the, from 62, while The Great Escape is about to go into production, um, called The Password is Courage, that directly steals, and I have to use the word steals, steals a scene from The Great Escape. Um, it's, the Password is Courage, the film, is a UK-US co-production starring Dirk Bogard. It is based on a non-fiction book, but it includes a scene of a tunnel coming up short that's not in the original book of The Password is Courage, but obviously is in Brick Hill's story of The Great Escape. Uh, and it's handled the same way. One of the figures realizes they've come up short and climbs out of the tunnel to create a s- signal system so that es- the escapees know when it's safe to come out of the tunnel and run toward the woods. That's again, not in the book of The Password is Courage, it's in the book of The Great Escape. and I. Th- I'm pretty sure they just took it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it, I know this is hard to believe, but we've been talking for 58 minutes, and I feel like we're only scratching surface. That's what's so great about this particular book is that there is so much material there. Obviously, um, how did the film do when it was first released? Was it popular? Did it? Was it a hit? How did it actually get uh, critiqued? How were reviews for it?
1: It did very well at the box office. It was one of the top films of 1963. It was also successful in places like Japan. Interestingly, Japan has a big uh, fan base for the great escape. It didn't do that well in its immediate UK release, but over the years it's become a kind of icon of UK popular culture, even though some some Britishers faulted for having American actors. Um, For example, The theme song that we were talking about before is played at soccer matches in the UK and is there to be this kind of rousing, they'll always be in England. Um, So the the all England soccer team always has a band that plays the great escape theme and a record of that became a best-selling album. Um, Its critical success was divided. There were people, most critics who liked it, liked it not in the way I'm talking about in the book as a moral investigation or or, uh, an investigation of the moral ambiguities of war. It was talked about more as a sensational adventure. Those who liked it thought it succeeded in that way, a kind of nail biting film of suspense. Those who didn't like it didn't like it because they didn't think it worked as a film of suspense. The most famous is the New York Times critic Bosley Crowther, who tended not to like John Sturges' films in general. And he really hated The Great Escape. He thought it was improbable. It was silly. The very things that we've now made iconic, like um, Steve McQueen in the cooler bouncing his baseball, he said was one of the most moronic jokes of the year in film. Interestingly, two POWs had, who had been at the camp, uh, David David Jones and Wally Floody, who was also technical advisor to the film, wrote letters to The New York Times critiquing Crowther. So there was a divided critical reception. For me, what's interesting, and again, I would love to know more about this. I don't know any way you could actually research this. It was expected that as a big roadshow film, 160, 172 minutes, big cast, epic in quality, dealing with um, war, et cetera, that it would get lots of Oscar nominations. Um, maybe not win, but would get uh, best picture, best director, et cetera. Sturgis had once before been nominated for Bad Day at Black Rock. It only got one Oscar nomination and that was for editing. Um, uh, uh, Ferris, Ferris Webster was nominated for best best editor and didn't win. How the West was won one for editing. And you know, when you get a single nomination and it's in a technical cat- category, that can sometimes be a concession. It's sort of like, we know we're not gonna nominate it for anything else. Let's at least acknowledge something technical about it, even though they didn't give it the Oscar. So there was some surprise that it didn't get more Oscar nominations. Well, as I
0: say, uh, your book, one of the things I like about it is because, as you said right at the beginning, you didn't want this just to be the making of, a making of book, which there are plenty of great making of books that just basically talk about the film, but you definitely made sure to get into... Some more to it than that, including the concepts of adaptations, especially, and also some of the ambiguities of the film, which, as you point out, was somewhat unusual for the period. But also, it helps that you also talk about the whole concept of, first off, prisoner of war films, but also, more importantly, that the post World War II film boom, so to speak, were not all. Rousing, six you know success stories, and I think that's an important view of histor- you know film history as far as how various events are covered by film.
1: Yeah, and I would say beyond the POW and war escape, I'm I was also struck in doing research for this book, but also going back to my memories of seeing films in the in the 60s, how often. A broader theme of entrapment or incarceration dominated many films and popular culture and high culture of the 60s. Um, and it's entrapment it can be political entrapment. It can also be a kind of existential entrapment. We are caught by systems of control. Um, the TV show, The Prisoner, um, Sidney Lamette doing a film called The Hill about a uh, prisoner, it's not prisoners of war, it's a camp for British soldiers, uh, it's a British camp for British soldiers who have done something wrong in their career as soldiers, desertion, uh, insubordination. There's Peter Watkins does a film called Punishment Park, in which hippies are basically forced to be escapees and are hunted down. And this idea of we are all entrapped, Um, obviously I think for certain populations in America in the 1960s, for example, African Americans in prisons, it's, it's in the air. It's also, I think for white Americans, it's this idea that we're trapped in lifestyle. We're trapped in the world of suburbia. We're trapped in nine to five work. Um, I was just yesterday in class talking about Billy Wilder's, The Apartment. The idea that wanting to succeed rat is itself entrapping. And is destructive of the soul. I think these ideas that were caught, and were existentially caught, were politically caught, were economically caught, were being administered, were being uh, turned into data. The sixties is also this moment where there's worry about uh, the computerization of of your life. You're, you're turned into a uh, an IBM card. That was one of the things that the Berkeley protests were about. We don't want to be data. We we want to be people. You know. What does he say in the prisoner? I am not a number. I am a free man. And I think that's also part of the resonance of the great escape is even as it's a Hollywood entertainment, it's also tapping into these larger issues around identity self selfhood and what it means when systems of control systems of entrapment try and crush those. I even found a a kind of prisoner existential prisoner, moment in the love bug there's a moment in the love bug and i talk about this in the book where she's trapped by herbie the 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 volkswagen because herbie knows that she should be with dean jones and has locked all the doors she's inside and she starts beating on the, the windows this hippie van comes by and she says i'm trapped and the hippie goes well man we're all trapped in the infinite cosmos of existence so um it's humorous there and you do get humorous versions of or comic versions of incarceration Uh, The most famous, obviously, or most infamous is Hogan's Heroes, which is clearly inspired by the Great Escape and makes reference to the Great Escape or indirect reference. And Stalag Uh, 17, too. Yes. There's quite a bit. In
0: fact, they both have a certain similarities as both Stalag 17 and Great Escape. And then, of course, Hogan's Heroes of certain aspects. But yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. The buffoonish
1: guard. Right. Um, You know, and. With the obvious differences, the, the in Hogan's Heroes, the goal is not to escape. You need to stay in the camp. Um, the, the what's what the Great Escape keeps talking about is the sworn duty of prisoners to escape, which actually is was not a sworn duty, as I talk about. Um, you know, in the Great Escape, you want to get out. In Hogan's Heroes, you get out to go on a mission and then come back, so then the next episode can start again. And obviously, there's a difference between serial TV where each episode, they're set a mission, often by London, which radios to Hogan, or some German comes into the camp who's an engineer, a scientist, and they immediately realize they have to do something within the next 25 minutes to stop a nefarious plot. Every episode has closure so that the next episode can start up again. There is no absolute closure in The Great Escape, except the closure of the men being returned to the camp and maybe starting again. And in the last image, it's Hilt bouncing the ball against the wall of his cell, as if to say, it will continue. The cycles of entrapment and escape, defeat, resilience will go on endlessly. Um, you know, We know, watching Hogan's Heroes, that every episode will end with resolution. I think part of the power of The Great Escape, especially when Ives is killed halfway through, is we say, all bets are off this film could go in any direction. One of the things I also talk about um, in the book is the, I think, very strong influence for the 1960s of another film, which is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Uh, The film critic, David Thompson writes, has written a book called The Moment of Psycho. And he says, one of the things Psycho gives to the 60s is the possibility of killing off people you care about and breaking the narrative contract that if someone is the star, they'll be there at the end of the film. So, Um, Marion Crane is killed off maybe 25 minutes into that film. Through the 60s, that can happen again and again and again. Ives can die. Uh, uh, Bartlett, the Richard Attenborough character, can die. David McCallum, the Ashley Pitt character, can die. Bonnie and Clyde can die. Luke in Cool Hand, Luke can die. Death is possible um, in part because death is possible in the real world of the 1960s, whether it be the unexpected death of presidents and political figures, you know, the great escape is the same year as the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. We're, we're in this buoyant, uh, youthful vitality of the Kennedy administration. And suddenly that narrative is cut off. And it's again, a shock, a trauma, um, different obviously from the shock and trauma within a fiction film, but I think they are all of a piece.
0: Well, the good thing is, is that this book, for anybody that's interested in either the any of the concepts or even the Great Escape film, um, this book is a great way to learn more about it and get background, but also review a lot of these themes. The other good thing is as I mentioned at the beginning, the Criterion Edition version of the Great Escape is one of their one of the best criterion editions, not that there aren't a um, hundreds of great ones, but that one, I mean, it's got two commentaries, it's got a lot of supplements, it's really the kind of way that you can uh, view a film like this, and Paul Brickhill's book is still in print, so if you really want to do some study, you can read his 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 book, The Great Escape, so it, it's an embarrassment of riches, but your book definitely does a good job, a great job of, of bringing this all together, and has some really useful information not only of the film but as we already talked about is the power of good research and and how you can sometimes find the needle in the haystack even like I said before like if you didn't even know the needle existed. So I really want to thank you for your time and we've spent over an hour and as I said earlier I don't think we've barely scratched the surface of the entire story of The Great Escape so I hope people in addition to reading the book will uh, reach out and take a look again, if they haven't seen it in a while, or even if they've never seen it in the past. So I really appreciate your time and I hope the book is doing well. I know it just got published officially.
1: Yes, just this week. And, you know, if any of your listeners want to contact me and talk more about the great escape, it's very easy to find me. Uh, So encourage them to do that. I would just going back to the last thing you said about uh, the book is the brick hill book is still out there. There's also, and I talk about this and I, immense secondary literature on The Great Escape, in part because Brickell was writing within five years or six years of The Escape. He didn't have the distance of decades. Um, And there's a lot more material that's come to light. And the very fact that he wrote at the time has allowed or encouraged other historians to add to the pile. And there's this, I I, I was amazed how many books there are that are The Great Escape, The True Story, The Great Escape, What Really Happened, The Great Escape, such and such, and it's adding to Brickle or saying he didn't deal enough with Canadians. So there's a book about Canadians in the Great Escape. There's anyone who had any notoriety in the Great Escape has a book about them. There's a biography of Roger Bushell. There's the collected papers of Von Lindiner, who was the actual commandant at Stalag Luft Three. So you can get into this rabbit hole of endless, endless, endless reading about um, the Great Escape.
0: Well. As I say, uh, it's the latest in, in your many books, and it's it's great that uh, you show such um, interest in your subject. I mean, obviously, you these days, you especially given your career, you're going to write about what you're interested in. Right. Uh, but in the same way, I think your enthusiasm really lends it. The book really lends
1: and, and clearly comes from that enthusiasm. So I really yeah, want to... I think this- I was going to say, I think this is the first book, although I've written a number of books, the first book where I really went that far in using I and talking autobiographically. And in part because it's because this film had such autobiographical importance for me and also where I am in my career is uh, looking back over um, the films I grew up with, the films that I'm interested in. You know, I did a book on Pulp Fiction for the British Film Institute, uh, the modern classic series. And I was very proud that you could read that book and not actually tell whether I liked Pulp Fiction or not. I talked about those who, dis- who hate Tarantino, those who love Tarantino. I did not give my opinion. Obviously, you need some interest in your object to write a book about it, but it doesn't have to be a positive interest. And I was very, I was very tenacious in want- not wanting my opinion there. For this book, and i say at one point, I write as a fan and a scholar of The Great Escape It was my way of coming to grips with the film that had influenced me more than 50 years ago. And I really wanted to write about that, but also with the assumption that if I felt this way as a kid, it was likely that others felt that, that it had done similar things to them. And when I did these, so I specifically set out to do a lot of interviewing of people, and I found that their experience often was similar. They were devastated by the downbeat turn in the film. they remembered it, although interestingly, a number saw it, were traumatized, and never wanted to go back to it, or felt they had seen it that time. Uh, but it stayed with them and they remember certain details. And I liked in my, the anecdotes I recount how detailed they often get about. I remember this scene or I remember this. You know, someone remembered the moment where Sedgwick cuts a bike lock uh, because he had, had a this this viewer himself had a bike route. Um, And thought, even though he's an escaped POW, there's something wrong about stealing an anonymous person's bike. And in the movie theater, he panicked and turned to his mom and said, he's stealing, he's stealing. And she said, all's fair in love and war. And he said, this is the first time I'd ever heard that phrase. It resonated for that film. But then as the 60s went on, I started to think about it in relation to the morality of the war we were waging at the moment, the Vietnam War. So it was those kinds of things that really kept me going and where I really wanted to talk about I in a way I'd never done in any previous book.
0: Well, I once again um, hope people. It's published by the University of California Press, Dreams of Flight, The Great Escape in American Film and Culture, and I enjoyed speaking with Dana Poland about it. And as he says, he's easy to get a hold of. He teaches his N- at NYU, so you can look him up without too much trouble. And sound as, as, as hopefully the interview shows, he is definitely... Uh, tied to this subject very strongly, and and I really want to thank you for spending uh, so much time with me about it today, and I hope uh, the book
1: goes well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: My thanks to Dana. He definitely gave me a new perspective on The Great Escape. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.